We're going to finish our Experiencing God series today. If you're just jumping in, if this is your first time, we'll, we'll get you kind of spun up on the series. But we've been walking through how God works, how he speaks, how he moves in our lives to experience in him more. And we've called those realities. And so we'll walk through those today and we're going to finish with our, our seventh reality, which we'll get to in just a moment. But I want to invite you, if you're able, to stand to your feet. And I do want us to share a, a passage of scripture together as we jump back into our Experiencing God series and this final message um, in our teaching. And this is a passage that we have given a lot of attention to over the last two months. It's hard to believe it's already been two months, but we've given a lot of, t- of, of attention to it. We've said this is our foundational verse for our Experiencing God teaching. The context of it is a prayer. It's a prayer that Jesus prayed for you. It's a prayer that Jesus prayed for me. And it's found in John chapter 17, verse 3. And I would love for us to read this prayer from John 17, 3 together as we begin this morning. Can we do it? All right, let's do it. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. Great. You guys can be seated. Good job. Job reading. Um, I always get nervous reading together because I, I feel like I'm going to get words out of order. Um, so thank you guys for, for joining me in that. It's such a foundational passage for us to put deep in our hearts the truth that Jesus prays. There's just one sentence, but it's really powerful. And I just want to highlight this as we begin this final message that what Jesus prays for, what we just read together, is that you would experience God. Uh, because the word know there in the Greek actually means to experience. It's, it's more than just our Western way of know, knowing things, which is typically more informational or data-driven, that we would know a, a truth or a piece of data or information. It's more than that. It's that you would actually know someone or something through experience, through relationship, or to say it another way, through journeying with them. And so what Jesus says is that you would know or have eternal life, which means real life, true life, life eternal in God, by knowing the one true God and Jesus, his son, by experiencing him. And so that's why this has become our foundational verse. And for some of you, if you don't take anything else away from this series, maybe you'll just write that verse down on a note card and put it on your mirror or in your Bible or on your refrigerator. And just remember that Jesus prayed for you. And what he prayed is that you would experience what it means to be fully alive, to be your true self as God made you to be, and to experience God fully by knowing him, by walking with him, by journeying with him. And we've been talking about the ways that that has happened for people all throughout humanity, these realities of how God has shown up in people's lives. So before we get to that final reality, let me just, if you're just joining us or you've kind of been in and out the last two months and you're just kind of wondering, what has this Experience in God series been all about? Well, it is online, so you can go and listen to every message, but I'm going to kind of summarize it in one sentence, okay? I just want to make it as simple as possible to understand what we're after here when we talk about experiencing God. When our kids were little, when, when, when I would leave, you know, to go to work or go someplace, um, each of them in their own way would come and say this one sentence to me. And I thought about it multiple times this week in study. They would say, you know, Daddy, I want to go with you, which is awesome to hear. But then they would say, and this was hilarious and great, where are you going? And I love that because um, to me, this is what it means to experience God. 
that before we know all the data and we have the whole map laid out in front of us of knowing exactly what's going to happen in our lives and exactly what it means to follow Jesus in every moment, in every relationship, in every way, that more than anything else, we just want to be with God. And we want to join him in his work, in, in his adventure, his great adventure and story in the world. And this whole series has basically been about this, guys, if you're just kind of a visual person. It's been about getting Jesus out in front of us and us following Jesus in every way and area in our life. And the truth is that, man, it sounds really simple, but the truth is that oftentimes, even for those of us who have, you know, placed our trust in Jesus and we are a follower of Jesus, the world and life has a way of getting us way out in front of the line and ahead of Jesus and treating Jesus just sort of like a, hey, just come on, you're just a member of my team, my, my board of advisors, and I'm just going to pull you up to the front every now and then, Jesus, when I come to a crossroads or I get stuck or I need your blessing or I need help with something, I just want to call you up to the front of the line with me, get your help, get your blessing, get your favor, and then Jesus, get on back to the back of the line and I'll take it from here. And we would never say it that way, but the truth is practically many of us live that way. And I've shared stories with you throughout the series of, of moments in my life where I've certainly lived that way, where I've gotten way ahead of Jesus. And I've just treated Jesus like this, you know, celestial genie, you know, just come and bless me and grant me three wishes as I'm on my journey, Jesus, and bless me in what I'm doing. And this whole series has been about reorienting the order of which I live and putting Jesus out front and following him. And guys, it sounds so simple, but, but sometimes the simplest truths are the, the most difficult truths to live out, so foundational, but here it is. If Jesus isn't ahead of you or in front of you, you're not following him. It, if, if he's not out in front of you, you're not following him. You, you're either ahead of him or you're beside him. And spoiler alert, okay, and if you have this on your car, I'm not judging you, but maybe you wanna peel it off today or see if you can scrape it off. Jesus didn't come to be your co-pilot. Jesus didn't come to sit beside you and just, you know, if you get in trouble, I'll help you out. Uh, Jesus came to be your master. He came to be your teacher, your rabbi, your savior, your Lord. What does that mean? To be out in front of you. And he's asking you to follow him. And as you, I know this sounds so simple, but as you follow him, you have to make the adjustments in your life to follow after the rabbi and master. It's not him catching up to you and just trying to bless you on your way or be your co-pilot. That's not why Jesus left heaven to come to earth to sit on your right hand and give you some tips about being a better you. It's not why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. There's a difference. He didn't come to be your co-pilot or an advisor to you. He came to be your savior, to be your Lord. And this is serious. Because if we're really serious about experiencing God, and I believe that you are. If you're here, if you're watching, you are. The only way that's going to happen this year, and we get to 2025 and you're more like Jesus and you're experiencing more of his life, what he prayed for you in John 17, three, the only way that's going to happen is if you get yourself out from the front of the line and put Jesus in front of you. And you begin to follow him and make the adjustments and what he's telling you to do in your life. 
And that brings us to this final reality. I'm going to show all of them together at the end. Okay, so if you're just coming in, I'll give you the other ones too. But I want to start with this final seventh reality of experiencing God. And the seventh reality says this. You come to experience God as you obey him and he accomplishes his work in and through your life. Let me say it again. You come to experience God as you obey him and he accomplishes his work, not your work, his work in your life and through your life. Another word for obey or obedience is to say yes to God, to agree with Jesus, to put him out front and to agree with his way. And then he begins to accomplish his work in your life first. There's an order here. He begins to rearrange your inner life and then that is evidenced by your outward life, how he works through you. So uh, there's a difference between, as we talked about, the word no. And when we think about that word, we think about knowledge or data, things that we can know about someone or something. There's a difference between that and what Jesus prayed in John 17, 3, that you experience, that you actually uh, experience God's work in your life and through your life. It's going to get better, I promise. Um, and, and here's the difference, right? I'm going to just do this in a visceral way. So a couple years ago, several years ago, we got a chance to um, go drive a, a NASCAR car, right? The driving experience. Well, this was young Chris and Jen. And I grew up in Charlotte, so I grew up watching races, going to races, um, Knew a little bit about racing, not a ton, but I know a little bit about it and just how fast the cars go and listening to them and watching it. And again, being there for multiple races, there was nothing like sitting behind the wheel of a car and going 150 miles an hour around the racetrack. Completely different to feel that power and to know I'm not even going near as fast as these guys go. Incredible. There's a total difference between knowing a lot about God or even, I mean, and these are wonderful things, but to go to a, a class or come to church and listen to a sermon or whatever and to learn about God, that's wonderful. And then there's a total difference in actually experiencing God's work and it translated in your life, making a difference in you and then making a difference through you. All right, here's, here's a passage that really illustrates what I'm talking about here. And the difference between knowing about and knowing and experiencing God and what God is after in your life. Okay, again, another foundational passage here. Mark chapter 1, verse 17. Jesus is calling disciples, just like us, and inviting them on a journey with him, which is what discipleship is. It's following Jesus on a journey in your life, through your life. And this is what Jesus says. Again, it sounds so simple. Right? But to live this out is so difficult in trusting Jesus and putting him ahead of you. This is what Jesus said to the early disciples and to each of us now. He says, come follow me. Okay, full stop. We're putting Jesus ahead. He's in the first seat. Right? He's out in front of us. Come follow Jesus. And then he says, I will make you. I love this. Because as we put Jesus in front of us and we follow after Jesus, we don't have we, we don't know exactly where we're going, but we're going with him. We're following him. And then he's making us. He's making us into the men and women that he designed us and called us to be. He's rearranging my life from the inside out. I'm saying yes to him. I'm agreeing with him. And he's changing me. 
And then he's beginning to use me to, to be a part of his work to change other people. And how does that happen? He says, I'm going to make you what? Fishers of men. There's three things that are happening here. I'm putting Jesus out front. I'm following him. He's making me. He's conforming me more to his image, not to my image. Because remember, you're going to be conformed into the image of the person or the thing that you're beholding first in your life. So let me say it another way. You will become what you behold. So whatever you're elevating in your life that you're beholding, whether that's money or career or a person or a relationship or a status or whatever it might be, which for all of us, if we're honest, there's a lot of competing things for our attention. And whatever we lift up and behold, we start to become. So the, the call of Jesus here, very simple but very difficult to live out, is that we would behold him first and foremost. And as we behold him, we become like him. He makes us. And what does he make us? He makes us in the people who can do what? Help other people find and follow Jesus. Remember, he's talking to fishermen here. So he's saying, I'm gonna take you from being a fisherman of fish out in the Sea of Galilee, and you're gonna start fishing for men and women. You're gonna go start helping other people to follow me so that I can make them into my image and I can be you know, working in and through them to help other people to do the same. Does this make sense? It's, it's, it's such a simple, simple verse, but so profound that we would put Jesus first, that we would trust that, listen, God is more concerned and God is more committed to your discipleship, meaning making you more like him, making you, than you are. But, but you can't be made into the image of Jesus if he's not out front and you're not following him. Whatever is out front, whether it's you, your spouse, a friend, a job, your bank account, whatever is out front, you're going to become like that. So Jesus says, put me out front. When you put me out front and behold me, I'm going to make you into my image. And then you're going to be useful in helping other people to find me and follow after me. That's what this is about. That's what the whole experiencing God journey is about. You know, saying yes to him, obeying him, agreeing with him, and then him working in my life and then through my life to other people. So here's the final passage for our seventh reality. That I come to experience God as I obey him, or I agree with him, and I experience him working in my life and then through my life. I want to just share a passage with you just for a couple of minutes. It's found in 1 John chapter 2. This is the Apostle John the John that journeyed with Jesus, he's the only disciple of the 11 that was not martyred for his faith. But he was exiled on an island called Patmos. And then there he was given the revelation that is our final book in the New Testament about the life and world and and age to come. And before that, he writes not only his gospel that carries his name, but multiple letters to people just like us, to the church, to people who were following Jesus, who wanted to experience more of Jesus, uh, to agree with him in their life and through their life. And these are the words that he wrote to them. First John chapter two, I just wanna look at a couple of verses, verses one through six. And so as we think about the seventh reality of saying yes to God, and him working in my life and then through my life, you know, I don't know about you, but if I'm gonna say yes, everybody watch this. If I'm going to agree, I wanna know what I'm agreeing to. If I'm going to obey, that's a big word. Wouldn't you agree? Obey, 
We don't use that word in our culture. Submit, surrender. I mean, our culture and world says, I'll submit to no one. I surrender to no one. I'm the master of my world and my fate. And Jesus is calling us to submit and surrender to him, to put him out front, to obey him. So what are we agreeing to? What are we saying yes to? And God working in our lives and through our lives. This is what John is saying. And before I get to our passage, let me just give a little bit of context. Because remember, whenever we read the scriptures, we study the scriptures, we have to put passages into context. Because if we take a passage out of context, it becomes pretext. And then we begin to speak our own words and our own context into that verse. So we have to take the verse and put it into its original meaning and context. And what I want to show you here, again, this is the Apostle John who journeyed with Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who was the only survivor and even then was exiled and beaten and persecuted. And, And by the way, you know, we're on our journey right now to Easter and this Lenten season and journeying to the cross. People will die for what they believe to be true. It happens every day. We read about it in the news all the time. People dying for causes and religions and things that they think are true. People don't die for what they know to be a lie. They're not martyred and burned at the stake and beheaded knowing that it was all a conspiracy, that we faked it. All the disciples go to their deaths saying Jesus is Lord. John writes this letter and he, listen to the heart of what he's saying. He says in verse four, before we get to our passage, we, and he's speaking again for all of his brothers that are now deceased, that have been martyred. He's the only one left. He writes this somewhere around 80 to 85 AD. It's one of the last letters in the New Testament that's included before his own death. He says, we're writing these things so that, whenever you see a so that in the Bible, you should circle it, highlight it. What's it there for? Why is he writing this? He says, I'm writing this so that you may fully share our joy. And where does that joy come from? We'll look at verse five. First John, I'm in first John. Are you there with me? I'm in first John chapter one, verse five. This is the message we heard from Jesus and we now declare to you. This is so powerful. In other words, he's saying, I was an eyewitness. I heard this message directly from Jesus and I'm writing it down. I'm giving it to you. These guys knew that the oral tradition of passing it down, which is how news was spread, uh, specifically, you know, word to word, word, uh, word of mouth, people telling stories. But they began to write the stories down and what we now have codified in the scriptures because they knew that they were passing away and that other people for generations to come would need to know the stories of Jesus. And they were led by the Holy Spirit to do that. And so John says, we want your joy to be complete. And the, the way you have joy and experience the same joy we have is knowing Jesus and knowing the stories of Jesus. And then he gets to our passage. And I want you to see how he begins. Chapter 2, I'm in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. He says, first three words, my dear children. This is a, a letter of affection. This is, this is a, hey, he, he's an old man now. All of the other disciples have been martyred. He's the only one left of the original. And now he's taking on the mantle as a spiritual father. And he wants to pass along truth. What do fathers do more than anything else? Fathers see the future. 
Fathers look ahead and they convey, convey truth to help their children to know what's coming. So he says, my dear children, I want you to know this truth. As you walk, what we just did today, where we're claiming truth over a generation that will walk into a future that we won't see. So important as spiritual fathers and mothers to be able to speak truth to spiritual children. And so he says, my dear children, I'm writing this to you. Here's our words again, so that, so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, listen to these words. We have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. Who's our advocate? Who's pleading our case before the Father? Look at verse 2. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. What am I saying yes to? What are you saying yes to when you say yes to Jesus? Our seventh reality, that as I say yes, as I obey God, I experience his work in my life and through my life. What am I saying yes to? What am I going to experience? First and foremost, John says, you're going to experience Jesus as your advocate because he is. And he reminds us that he's not your co-pilot. He reminds us that he's not just a, a moral teacher. He reminds us that he didn't just come and do good things for other people. He was an advocate pleading our case before the Father. And not only that, verse 2, he took on your sins and my sins and paid the penalty and price for them. And he was the only one that could do that. Why? Because he was the only righteous one. What does righteous mean? Good, perfect, holy. He's the only one that could be a sacrifice in our stead. So here's the, here's the picture that John's painting for us as we try to understand what are we saying yes to when we say yes to God. It's a courtroom. And I, I know we have attorneys in here. It's a courtroom. And, and we're being prosecuted for our many sins and brokenness, which, by the way, if you go, well, that's not me. I mean, I'm not that bad. Go read verses 8 through 10 in chapter 1. And when you do, you're going to read John saying, if we say that we're without sin, we're lying to ourselves. We're deceiving ourselves. And the, believe me, the greatest lies that you'll ever tell are the ones you tell yourself. And John says that maybe the greatest of all the lies that we tell ourselves is that I'm not that bad. I'm better than this guy. I'm better than that guy. But what's the standard? The standard is holiness, righteousness. So this takes us back to Paul's teaching, which in a couple weeks we'll get back into Romans again. I'm excited about that. And Paul says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the righteous standard of God. What does that mean? We're, we're all standing in the need of grace. We're all broken. So back to our courtroom. We're standing before a righteous judge, the Father himself. And right before we're getting ready to be sentenced, rightly for our sins and our brokenness, who stands up in the courtroom right beside us and pleads our case before the Father? Jesus, our advocate, right? Our attorney, our defense attorney, who's going to come before the judge and say, please don't put that penalty on them. And the judge says, why shouldn't I put that penalty on them? They deserve it. They're guilty. And Jesus says, you know, not only am I going to advocate for them, but John says, he goes even further and he becomes uh, sin for us. He takes on our punishment. So not only is he your defense attorney, he takes on the sentence for you to set you free. 
That's what Jesus did for us. And in this way, as Jesus, our advocate, what are we saying yes to? When we say yes to God and obeying God in his way, well, first and foremost, we're saying yes to his grace. And we all need his grace. What is grace? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So, look, mercy would have been the judge saying, all right, I'll put my sin on you, Jesus, or uh, their sin on you, Jesus, and you can just go away. That would have been mercy. And that would have been great. But it didn't even stop there. Not only did we receive mercy and that we didn't get what was coming to us and the penalty for our sin, but we were invited to be a part of God's family as dearly loved children. Why? Because we were adopted into the Father's family through Jesus. That's what grace is, is getting what we don't deserve. Being invited to be a child of God. And this all happens because of Jesus being our advocate and his work in our lives first. And it's predicated on John saying, if we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, then he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. In other words, if we admit and agree and say, yes, I am a broken person in need of your grace, God is ready and standing and willing to forgive. And he forgives because Jesus has already paid it all for you. If you want to just write a little cross-reference down to go further in your study this week, write down 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Go read it. Particularly verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. The apostle Paul says, he, Jesus, who knew no sin. In other words, he was righteous, he was pure, he was holy. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther said that's the gospel in one sentence. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that you, those of us who are sinners, all of us, could become like Jesus, to, could become righteous. And that's what theologians call the great exchange. That we became righteous because Jesus took on our unrighteousness. And he was the only one who could do that. And we'll celebrate that together in several weeks on resurrection morning. That Jesus not only was our advocate saying, please don't punish them, but he took on our punishment and then allowed us to be adopted into the family of God. So when we say yes to God, we're saying yes to Jesus as our advocate. And guys, I think you would agree with me, if that was the end of it, that would be enough. But that's not the end of it. It gets even better. John says, not only is Jesus our advocate, remember, He's the last living original disciple. He's writing as a spiritual father to us as spiritual children to live into a day and a time that he won't. And he knows that. He says, remember, Jesus is your advocate. But secondly, Jesus is our example. I said it gets even better. Listen, John writes in verse 3 and following, and we can be sure. Now, I'm going to stop there. How many of you, you don't need to raise your hand, feel like you have a lot of surety in your life. How many of you on a regular basis say, I am sure of my job. I am sure this person is representing themselves in the way that they really are in truth. I am sure that this is gonna happen in the future. I am sure, we don't say it a lot because the truth is that there's not many things in this life in this world to be sure of. John is saying, as an old man here, who's followed Jesus, who's heard all this himself, who's been persecuted, he says, this is what we can be sure of. So we should, if you've lost me, 
we should, we should kind of come back in the room here and listen up. Because John's going to tell you what you can be sure of. He says we can be sure that if we know him, there's our word, know, experience. If we journey with him, if we relate to him, if we really know him, we'll obey his commandments. If we know him, we're going to obey his commandments. And if someone, verse 4, claims that, here's our word again, I know God, but they don't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. John's too old to pull punches here. Verse 5, those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know that we, there's our word, know that we're living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Uses the word life or live three times there. What, what does this mean? John says, if you really believe this, that Jesus is your advocate, if you really believe that you've been set free from the penalty of sin and death and that you've now been adopted into the family of God, it will be evidenced in the way that you live. Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect or he w- wouldn't have written 1 John 1, 9, that we need to confess our sins before God because we are broken, sinful people. And we will not get it perfect until we get to heaven and are made perfect. But what John is saying is, if you really believe in Jesus and he's really out front of you, it will change the way that you live. It'll change the way you speak. It'll change the way you think. And little by little, Jesus will begin to make you, Mark 1, 17, into his image. Because what you behold, you become. And John says, basically, if someone says, I know God, and nothing changes in their life, like nothing ever you should question, do I really know God? And by the way, this isn't meant for you to walk around and be what's known as like a fruit inspector where you're like, are you really, do you have enough fruit? Are you really someone who, this is for you to take account in your own life. Do I really know God? Is Jesus really out in front? Am I really being conformed into his image? Am I different a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now in following Jesus than I am today? It's not a game of perfect, but it's God making and perfecting you more into his image as you journey with him. That's what the journey is all about. And so John is saying, look, if you say you believe in Jesus here, everyone watch, if I believe in Jesus here, then it should start to be evidenced here. It should start to be evidenced here by the work of my hands. It should start to be evidenced here by my thought life. Something should begin to change in me because of what I believe. Listen, all good doctrine, what is doctrine? What I believe. All good doctrine must become ethic. It becomes how I live. Uh, How, what I believe, to say it another way, is translated in how I behave. So, Ultimately, over time, this pattern of what I'm beholding is what I'm becoming. What I'm believing is how I'm behaving. What I hold as my doctrine becomes my ethic. This is what John is saying, that Jesus is our example. And in that way, we all need his guidance. That, that he didn't just relieve us from the penalty of sin and death and adopt us into our family, into his family. He gives us an example to live by. And guides us into true and meaningful life. So you guys remember the, 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 the WWJD? You know, what would Jesus do? I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful question to ask. It is. In your workplace, in relationships, you know, what would Jesus do? 
You know, I need his guidance. But here's the thing. You, you can't answer the question, because it is a question, what would Jesus do? You can't answer that question until you know what did Jesus do? Right? I mean, I can't know what Jesus would do in my situation in life until I read and I study and I understand what he said and what he did. That's what John is saying. I'm telling you what Jesus did so that you'll experience the same joy that we have by knowing these things. And that in that, you'll know what you're saying yes to when you say yes to obeying God and his work in your life as advocate and through your life as an example of how to live all of this out, your belief becoming your behavior. And in that way, what, what Jesus is asking each of us to and inviting us each in, uh, to in, by way of invitation is the same invitation, the same thing he invited the original disciples to, to come and follow him. And him making us into his image, experiencing more of him and becoming fishers of men and helping other people to find and follow him and experience after him. And guys, you, you, you know this if you've been here any amount of time and you've heard me say something, I keep saying it. The way to grow in your faith ultimately is to help other people grow in their faith. The, the way to become a more passionate follower of Jesus is to help other people become passionate followers of Jesus. When you disciple someone else, you yourself are discipled. You're studying the scriptures, you're praying, you're walking with Jesus so that, just as John did, you can become an example to others. So that's the seventh reality that we experience God in relationship as we say yes to him as our advocate, as our example, and we experience him working in our life and through our life. Now, here's all seven realities all together. So if you've missed any of these, here they all are. And again, they're all on the website. All the sermons and study notes are there for you to go to. And I, I just want to encourage you, if you've missed some, to go back and listen, to share these with other people. If you want to study it in your group or study it in your family, there's also a book that Henry Blackaby wrote that we're basing all of this on called Experiencing God. I just I want to encourage you to take your next steps. But I wonder, just by way of response, as we finish the series where you're at here on these realities. Again, these realities are how God has been known to work throughout time, how he's been known to speak, how he's been known to show up in people's lives. And so we started with the reality that God's always at work. We read that in Genesis 1.1, that in the beginning, God, God was working, God was. God was forming and moving and he still is. And the second reality that God pursues a relationship with us that is personal and eternal, that we could have life with him and know him and experience him, that God knows your name and is pursuing a real relationship with each and every one of you through Jesus, that God invites you into his work. What's his work? Look at one and two. He's always at work and his work is helping other people to find him and follow him. And he uses people that are already following him to help others to do the same. That's the work of the church. We believe, fourth reality, that God speaks by the Holy Spirit today. And he does so primarily through the scriptures, through circumstances, through prayer, through the church. That is God's people to reveal himself and his purposes and his ways to us. God's invitation will always lead to a crisis of belief. What does that mean? It means that if God is really out front in my life, that there will be multiple moments and times in my life where I, I come to a crisis of do I really believe that Jesus is not only my advocate and my example, my savior and my Lord, 
but he's really with me and calling me and that he's gonna be with me in this decision. Do I really believe this? And here's the thing, guys. If we're not on some kind of a regular basis having a crisis of what we believe about Jesus, we're probably not trusting Jesus enough or putting him far enough out in our life to follow him. Because over and over again, we're going to come to points in our life, in our career, our relationship, or whatever, where we're choosing the Jesus way, and it's going to force us to, to question and to really, you know, drill down, what do I really believe? Last week, Nick taught us that we have to make adjustments to our life. In other words, if Jesus is the one out front, I'm the one that has to make adjustments. Not me out front saying, Jesus, you make an adjustment to follow after me. I've got to make adjustments into my life. I wonder what that could be for you. And then again today, our final reality, you come to experience God as you obey him and he accomplishes his work in and through your life. In other words, as you say yes to Jesus, you come to experience him more and more. What if, what if we believe this? What if out of this series, instead of us saying, come on up here, Jesus, and follow me, come, come, come join me in what I want to do. What if we looked for how God is at work in, in our lives and all around us in life, and we joined him? We joined him in what he's already doing, because he's already at work, and he's already pursuing relationships with every man, woman, and child on the planet. What if we, what if we joined him in that saving work, that redemptive work? How would that change? How would that change us? What if we said, Daddy, I want to go with you. Where are you going? To him alone be the glory today. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you, would you seal these truths that we have spent the last two months reading and studying and preaching and experiencing together? And I want to pray for each of my friends, for those in the room, for those watching online, that you would seal those truths in our hearts and it would calls us to put you out front and to follow you. That you would make us more into your image and you would make us fishers of men, people that join you in your great redemptive work. So would you give us the wisdom today to know what you're speaking to us personally, each and every one of us. Give us wisdom. We need it. And would you give us the faith and the courage to take our next step in following after you. In Jesus' name. Amen.